The Guardian. I'm John Plunkett and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, the BBC is accused by MPs of having their snouts in the trough. We look at the fallout from the £60 million redundancy payoff row and the rift that's opened up between BBC Trust Chairman Lord Patton and former Director General Mark Thompson. And listen all about it as the police investigate Rupert Murdoch's secretly recorded Sun meeting. Plus, the BBC axes Ben Elton's sitcom The Right Way and 17 million people watch Andy Murray win Wimbledon on BBC One. But was the BBC's tennis coverage any good? This is Media Talk from The Guardian. We'll hear from Roy Greenslade on all things Murdoch and Guardian TV editor Rebecca Nicholson on everything small screen in a bit. But I start the show in the company of broadcast editor Lisa Campbell, a media talk regular, media consultant and much else besides Mr Paul Robinson. Uh, Welcome both. Hello. Thank you. We start this week, well, where else but with the BBC and the row over those six-figure redundancy payments. You remember the uh, 949 grand given to Mark Byford, the 670k to Caroline Thompson, and the 375,000, brackets, since return brackets, doled out to Rowley Keating. MPs on the Public Accounts Committee accused the BBC of having their snouts in the trough and newish Director General Tony Hall, who wasn't around when all this happened, of course, and so has nothing to do with it, admitted the BBC had lost the plot. But when the marathon three-hour hearing finished in Westminster on Wednesday, it wasn't so much about MPs taking on the BBC as a rumble in the jungle between these two men. In the blue corner, chairman of the BBC Trust, the former Tory MP and governor of Hong Kong, it's Chris, his lordship, Adam. And in the red corner, former BBC Director General, Chief Executive of the New Times Company, Mark Bajaramov Thompson. Seconds away, round three. Lisa, please stop me in my tracks. You should have done already. Uh, apologies all round. Uh, this is, of course, uh, the BBC types who were up in front of the House of Commons Public Accounts Committee on Wednesday, where they got a right royal grilling. But tell us a bit about it. Well, yep, three-hour mammoth session really putting the BBC under scrutiny around just how it could possibly have let this happen. So £60 million over eight years. Um, Not only huge severance payoffs, but going well above and beyond the contractual agreements. You know, the MPs really wanted to get to the bottom of who was responsible. And what the BBC did, as they always do, is refuse to blame any individuals. A complete case of, of passing the buck, I think, as as ever. You know, don't want to witch hunt. It's a, it's a cultural issue. I actually think that's quite worrying for the BBC going forward, because when it comes to the renegotiation of the licence fee... MPs could quite easily turn around to James Pennell, whose job it will be to to get the money, and say, well, we haven't seen anyone take any sort of accountability for any of this. Culture doesn't change overnight, so how do we know that we can trust you with the public's money? We've just had scandal after scandal of late, from the DMI, which was £100 million down the drain, to this £60 million, and then obviously all the Savile stuff. And Paul, if any one person was to blame, and certainly the person that... Um Lord Patton and another BBC trustee, Anthony Fry, said the uh, the MPs really should be asking questions to. It was former Director General Mark Thompson. Well, yes, I mean, the issue is that uh, the responsibility for this actually sat with the Executive Committee. And uh, at the moment, anyway, the Director General is also the Chairman of the Executive Committee. And they're the ones who would sign off or otherwise um, salaries and, and severance payments. Um, the role of the Trust is to oversee the executives, but it's not to physically sign off the payments. So in that sense, Chris Patton hasn't exactly got a sort of um, got off 
clean, but it wasn't actually directly his responsibility to uh, say yay or nay to these pay- payments. Clearly, what's extraordinary is that a committee of executives and obviously all the senior BBC managers of all the different divisions sit on there. I mean, a, a bunch of people who are accomplished, experienced, uh, you know, know what they're doing. It's extraordinary, I think, that payments on this sort of scale could be made. It's even more extraordinary that payments are made, as Lisa said, over and above contractual minima. Now, there's, you know, the argument comes out, uh, you know, from the head of HR that um, the, the purpose is to get people out of the door fast to achieve the savings. Well, that's fine and laudable and nothing wrong with that. But frankly, if you're paying someone contractual entitlement, you can get them out of the door straight away. The only delay in getting people out of the door is if you choose to negotiate via a compromise agreement and negotiate for less than they're contractually entitled to. So that argument doesn't wash. There's absolutely no reason to pay more. And particularly when it's public money, it really does feel as though this is a bunch of individuals looking after themselves, exactly as you said, you know, hands in the trough um, and failing to understand, critically failing to understand, not only does it not match up with a commercial organisation where this would never, ever happen, but also how do the public feel about it? And back to Lisa's point about the licence fee, you know, the public feel cheated, you know, they absolutely do. This is huge amounts of money that's not gone to programme making, it's gone into seeing people out of the door. I think Tony Hall's quote about execs being bedeviled by zeros is, is hilarious. It gives you some insight into the conversation. It sounds as though it was along the lines of, shall we add another zero? Oh, go on. It's not as though you haven't got a job to go to. Oh, hang on a minute. It really it's a really shocking. good point. It's a really good point. And the other point, of course, is that not all of these executives walked out the door into gardening leave or into a leisure life. You know, several of them, John Smith, notably the former chief operating officer, walked into another very senior job at Burberry straight afterwards. So, you know, in that situation, the law is that you've mitigated your loss. If you've been made redundant, you're no longer entitled to the full amount of your contract. You should be paid much less because you've found another job. Yet the BBC still paid, you know, contractual or more uh, entitlements to these people who had other jobs. Again, really, really disappointing. And I don't blame Tony Hall for trying to find a way of allocating this to the organisation rather to individuals. He's come in as DG and poor guy, he's been subjected to a barrage of problems which were not actually um, on his watch. But I do think he needs to very quickly grip this up and he's already said he's going to put a cap on severance payments um, he also clearly needs to make sure there's proper accountability with the HR department It's not just about the level of the licence fee, it's about the, the structure and governance of the BBC and, and as you say having the Director General as the Chairman of the Executive Committee seems a bit odd and needs to be definitely looked at and the system is flawed in terms of the BBC Trust not actually being able to take a judgment call on on this level of pay it, it just seems insane I'm sure the public would think hang on a minute why don't why don't they have the right to do that and I talked at the top about the, the rift between uh, emerging between Patton uh, and Thompson Paul and uh, Lord Patton sort of suggested that Mark Thompson hadn't told the trust exactly what was going on and Mark Thompson's come out today and said no hang on a minute I did tell uh, I told the trust exactly what was going on and exactly how much we were going to pay Mark Byford so there's a, a, a serious difference of opinion opening up here and uh, no love lost between the two well it seems as though only two of the major severance payments were brought to the trust you know why only two why were others not brought in front of them and I think that was only uh, because there was a structural change to the executive board so that was the only reason it well, wasn't necessarily a money reason but okay, okay, that on. doesn't necessarily wash I don't think and then there's the issue about Anthony Fry I mean who's you know I think someone who is independent and therefore hopefully can be relied upon he's talking about disconnects between what Thompson said and what actually happened when the National Audit Office investigated so clearly if there wasn't a deliberate attempt to mislead there was clearly bad communication at absolute best this was bad or miscommunication by senior executives. If Thompson didn't know about it and didn't sign it off, who did sign it off? You know, somebody must have done. And 
There seems to be um, a lack of curiosity, both by the trust and by BBC senior executives. We saw this in the Jimmy Savile affair. You know, why are you not asking the question? It's not good enough just to say, oh, someone didn't tell me. You should be asking, why is this amount being paid or what is this amount being paid? And I would expect the head of the BBC, which currently is the director general, to do that. But Lisa's right. It does really say that structure may need to change here. And maybe the BBC needs a CEO or someone like that who will run the operations of the business and then someone else who's in charge of the editorial and that question who should sign these things off was a a question that the mps uh keep coming back to and you'd imagine it might be the head of hr uh lisa lucy adams now how do you think she performed Uh, she had a tough day in the office i think it's fair to say i think so yeah i think uh, margaret hodge was particularly terrier like in her questioning um you know your head of hr why didn't you do something why didn't you say something and and uh, you know it, it felt like a valid argument i mean when you look at the fact that half the cost of the entire radio for budget went on getting rid of 150 managers and yes they needed to streamline quickly but really was that the price that that needed to be paid i have real sympathy for program makers actually because they're facing so many cuts um, with delivering quality first and really at pains to produce great quality programs yet at the top there seem to be serious flaws in the system and individuals who, who you know whose role in this is being questioned I just think the morale within the BBC must once again be rock bottom. You know, Adam says that this is the way things were done when she arrived at the BBC. Well, that may have been the case, but surely as the incoming HR director, it was her job to make sure things were done properly. And if they weren't right, to change them. So I, I think that's a very, very limp excuse. Yeah, custom and practice was the phrase she kept using, which I think should be probably put on some BBC head and notepaper somewhere. Well, uh, just because it's been done that way doesn't mean it should be done that way going forward. And I mean, it's the job of a senior manager to, of course, retain the things that work, but also look at the things that aren't working and improve them. That's what you're paid for. That's why you're paid a big salary to make things better. And uh, Lisa, just finally, this one's going to run and run because there are uh, people who are going to leave before this 150k cap on redundancy comes into effect. And then we've got Mark Thompson coming up before MPs in November. So uh, it's not going to go away anytime soon. No, and I think I think all eyes will be on that uh, session with Mark Thompson. I mean, he, he left the BBC in a blaze of glory, didn't he, on the back of the Olympics. And since then, we've had the Savile scandal, we've had the Digital Media Initiative, and now this. Uh, so he's going to have a, a lot of questions to answer when he comes, o- comes over. And all things BBC related, of course, at mediaguardian.co.uk. Next up, it's time to talk Murdoch, and I'm delighted to say we are joined down the line by Roy Greenslade, Professor of Journalism at City University, Media Guardian columnist, and lots more besides. Hello there, Roy. Ah, hello, John. Thanks for taking the time. This week, news of a secret recording of Rupert Murdoch addressing the troops at The Sun, in which he said, among other things, that the culture of paying police officers had existed at every newspaper in Fleet Street, and he also criticised the police as incompetent. Um, Roy, this is an extraordinary story. Tell us a bit more about what he had to say, and uh, and what are the ramifications? Uh, Well, clearly, he was trying to walk the tightrope between showing that he supported The Sun journalists and also didn't think much of the police, while at the same time being aware uh, that uh, his company, and indeed he, since he ordered it, uh, were responsible for setting up the Management and Standards Committee at News International, which, um, of course, passed on the information to the police, which led to the arrests of the Sun journalist. And so even in private, he was walking that tightrope. Of course, the trouble with the tape having emerged in public is that he shows that he said, prepared to say at least one thing in public that he's humble that he's sorry and so on and not at all critical of the police um and yet in private he is critical of the police he doesn't appear sorry 
In fact, he says, you know, you were only doing uh, what I expected of you. Uh, you only were doing what happens across the whole of Fleet Street. It's part of the culture. I know it. I've always known it. And the most probably, I was going to say incriminating, but of course it isn't uh, incriminating in the sense that I don't think it's illegal to say it. He basically says that um, he has known for years, at least in the past, uh, that newspapers paid for information by paying policemen. And there is a, uh, well, his comments are being investigated by the police, but um, you said that he's not really incriminating himself. But uh, uh, why are they doing that? And under what possible offences do they think he might have committed? Uh, well, I think that the reason that the police are studying it is to because they've all along wished uh, to find a way of bringing what might be called a corporate charge against News International, rather than merely merely prosecuting journalists, individual journalists. Uh, what they'd like to do is to bring a charge against the company itself for misconduct. Now, um, this might provide uh, at least the outside, they believe, of some evidence to show that. It was part of the culture of News International and that taken in concert with the individual charges, it might be possible to bring a corporate charge. My hunch is that although it's embarrassing for Murdoch, I don't think it's quite enough on which to launch a prosecution. Also, it, it turns out or we get the impression that his comments didn't do much to sort of appease or um, you know, make, make some journalists feel particularly better about their lot, possibly even the reverse. Well, I think that's the most interesting thing of all. I mean, the very fact that the tape was made in the first place, and then secondly, that it was leaked, and that details of the meeting were leaked virtually within minutes, within hours, certainly, of the meeting having taken place, shows that there is still a deep anger among those people who were arrested, an anger with Murdoch. These are people who, through their careers, have been extremely loyal to Murdoch, I mean, there is a sense about the sun and news of the world having been a bit like Millwall, you know, in other words, they're loathed by everyone else. So they tended to stand together. They tended to flock around and be proud of working for Murdoch. And yet their loyalty, uh, they now feel, has been misplaced. Okay, Roy, we're sticking with the press. The newspapers took the first step towards the establishment of of a new press regulator this week. It's going to be called the Independent Press Standards Organization, or IPSO, and if it actually becomes reality, then presumably that will make it, uh, you can see this one coming, Roy, uh, IPSO facto. Um, <laughs> thank you, for, you're very kind. And we'll have the power to impose fines up to £1 million. Um, how does this fit in with the uh, the impasse over those two royal charters we've been talking about on uh, Media Talks past? I think there's always been a bit of a misunderstanding, thinking that the charter is in effect, uh, what sets up the uh, new press regulator. But uh, that is not the case. It was always the case that uh, the industry were told, both by uh, Lord Justice Leveson and by the government in the shape of Maria Miller and David Cameron, to go away and set up their own regulator. The charter is about overseeing, or to use the, the key phrase, underpinning, the existence of that organization. So there's no real mystery in the fact that they've gone ahead and done it. They've done it very openly in the sense that they announced that they were setting up an information group led by uh, Mr. Vickers, who is uh, the legal manager and legal director at Trinity Mirror. And this was done partly under the auspices of the current chairman of the Press Complaints Commission, Lord Hunt. So that's not so surprising. However, there are features of the new regulator 
with which um, the victims uh, and their organization hacked off are, go- are going to be very upset, namely that they feel that the employers, the publishers, are still going to have too much say in the organization and that that is not within the letter or spirit of uh, Leveson's report. Um, and the um, they say, the publishers say, it is. So there you have it. It's a matter of interpretation. Uh, and uh, what what opportunity is there for Hacktoff to influence it? Um, will they do that through the politicians uh, who they've had some success with in the past, or, or or is it now you know almost back in the newspaper owners' hands? Well, I think this was always a problem for Hacktoff, and I think it's one that they acknowledge really, and that is that they can have and have had um, surprising amounts of say in the Royal Charter affair for a start, and have manipulated or or at least uh, helped to manipulate politicians who are pretty. Uh, I suppose, already predisposed to be uh, fairly negative about the press. But their influence over publishers is non-existent. And I think their problem is that this regulator will probably make it uh, through to the final stages, maybe a little tinkering at the edges, maybe the government has something to say about it, but it's hard to see what kind of influence they can bring to bear to make the kind of wholesale changes they want. Okay, Roy, well, more on that in future weeks, of course. Uh, But for now, thank you very much. And now this week, it's time for the ever-popular News in Brief. And, um, Lisa, we start off this week with Wimbledon, uh, where a peak audience of more than 17 million viewers watched Andy Murray beat uh, Novak Djokovic, uh, a name I've never said out loud before, uh, which was a great result for them. Uh, X-Factor aside, probably be the biggest audience of the year, I guess. Yeah, that's right. But there has been quite a lot of criticism about the coverage um, of Wimbledon by by the BBC. It is an issue. It does feel quaint, old-fashioned as a cucumber sandwich. When we've we've all moved on to sashimi or something now, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> but it's. I mean, I think the Speak Olympics. Yourself, yeah. <laughs> the Olympics showed just how you know how well the BBC could cover live sport. You know, that was that was world class. It was professional, engaging, informative, and I I just don't think Wimbledon was any of that i think i think the mat- matches were well filmed but presentation wise really fell short you know there were some quite weak and embarrassing interviews uh, you know real lack of depth and analysis to, to some of those questions and i think one of the one of the classics was ivan lendl being asked how significant was your role in uh, in murray's win and i think you know that kind of question deserved an answer like uh, you know not significant at all really i'm just here to see what anna wintour's wearing because we got so many shots of people like anna wintour and posh spice in the crowd and i accept it's difficult to to fill some of those gaps when they're quite short it's not like a football match and you've got the halftime analysis but really audiences are just so much more sophisticated now we've moved on we can see the kind of things you know we're used to sort of sound bites and interesting graphics and and things like that you know we don't have any of that i just think they've really got to refresh things paul what did you make of it because i always think the the wimbledon final always the bbc's coverage always really misses john mcamara who clearly can do all the bbc stuff until the final then he has to go off and do a u.s network and he leaves a you know a gaping hole that people like boris becker and andrew castle you know just basically fall into uh, but but what did you think did you think this criticism was legitimate well i think it's been a little bit harsh i mean i i think lisa's right and i, I agree with everything she's just said but i think having said that i quite like wimbledon being traditional and old-fashioned and very british i think it's part of it and i don't think it was a vintage wimbledon for the bbc but it wasn't bad badly covered you know i mean the final um 
I thought, you know, uh, was stunning. But, you know, all the other matches leading up to it were pretty, pretty, I, I was happy. You know, clearly, I mean, a figure of 72.8% share, which is what they got for the final, you know, 17 million people, um, is a huge audience. So a handful of complaints based on that sort of audience, it really has to be taken in context. I thought Tim Hedman did well, actually. I, I quite liked um, Hedman on, on the final. And I thought listening to t- Tim over the course of the tournament and even afterwards, you know, he was on the Today programme the following morning, he was incredibly gracious because it could have been a very awkward moment for him. You know, he's the guy who never quite got there. You know, and then suddenly this new guy, Andy Murray, you know, gets there and he, he's, he's a hero. And Tim must feel, you know, what if I had been there? But he was so gracious and so uh, honest about the whole thing. I thought he was brilliant. So overall, I'd say 7 out of 10 to the BBC can do better. But I think some of the criticisms were overly harsh. I think you can still keep that, you know, uniquely British sensibility around Wimbledon but just you know bring it a bit more into the modern age I mean we don't need old-fashioned sexist views that we had from John Inverdale and you know I I think that is is just appalling and 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 really inexcusable and it's also completely I mean the BBC just looks utterly hypocritical the fact that this summer they're launching a big initiative around participation in sports and trying to encourage more of that particularly among girls yet they go you're you know you're a young girl watching this and you think it doesn't matter how good a tennis player I'm going to become I'll be judged on my looks yeah I mean I totally agree Wim, Wim, Inverdale's gaffe was a really bad one an unchar- uncharacteristic one for him I mean Inverdale is a great broadcaster someone you know I've worked with I know him he's you know he really is a fantastic broadcaster it was a bad slip I think you have to accept people will make mistakes occasionally so i wouldn't link uh, a bbc policy with a slip by an individual broadcaster all be held for say, a long time isn't well, it i mean he's, you know he's made but no secret of the timing fact that the women shouldn't be paid as much well, that the tennis is boring to watch i mean it, it's it's mm. obvious what you know his opinions and and it's not a throwaway comment it's actually deep-rooted beliefs of he him. shouldn't have he shouldn't have said it no I was quite surprised actually to see him on air the following day and I, I find it hard to see how he can cover women's sport in the future to be honest. Yeah, oh, yeah. And, and you know uh, Colin Murray didn't get away with his throwaway remarks so it, it's, it, there's one rule for one and one rule for another at the BBC once again. Well I, I think again that's a little bit unfair I mean look you know the thing is that not everyone is equal they're, they're not and you have to judge in individual cases you can't say that every single gaffe results in someone being fired I mean no. on one case it did and another it didn't you know we don't know the details of the case you know it may be unfair but it might actually be totally fair okay well uh, on a lighter note uh, but staying with the bbc we'll try not to do any bbc next week honestly uh shane allen uh, entertained uh, journalists at a lunch uh, held by the broadcasting press guild this week where um uh, well he uh, revealed the bbc had axed uh, the right way uh, which is that ben elton sitcom which may not be to anyone's particular surprise but he had particular things to say lisa about um the, the role of twitter and uh, the real kind of mauling that that got and the, and the influence that has or potential influence that has on on talent and, and whether executives you know recommission shows yeah. like that and i think it was really interesting to discuss the impact of twitter and, and actually the negative impact it, it can have because up to now we've heard from broadcasters a lot it it, it can it's the oxygen for broadcasters. It's really helping drive engagement and, you know, conversations are happening around shows and it's driving audiences to, to those shows. Yet here we have an example where 
comedy, that most tricky and genres to get right, which really needs nurturing and programmes need time to bed in. And it just isn't getting that opportunity now with Twitter. And, you know, as Shane Ellen said, you you make your decision within 14 seconds and it's usually a, a negative one. And that's something that Ben Elton said he was, you know, very bruised by. So he wasn't willing to, to continue with the second series. I mean, you could say it didn't deserve to have a second series anyway. Um, you know, power to the people, isn't Twitter great? But you know, I think the worrying thing is that if an established comedian feels like that, how does you know new talent uh, feel? And Shane Allen's response is, you know, don't look at Twitter; it will just crush you and and leave you heartbroken. Uh, and and the concern is also that you know the classics of the past, Faulty Towers and um, Only Fools and Horses, they took a while to bed in. They took a good couple of series. So if this is the trend we're seeing now where this instant reaction is killing things from, from the word go, we won't get classics of the future. And, and the more original comedy is, the harsher the backlash often. Paul, do you think it's overstating it? Do you think, you know, even a couple of thousand tweets, you know, if you get six million on the overnights, then, uh, you know, then and Twitter, well, whatever. Look, I think Lisa's right. I mean, you know, if talent gets spooked by it, that's a problem. And talent can get spooked by it and talent can be sensitive. And that's not unreasonable. I mean, look, I mean, in terms of uh, whether or not you stick with the show, it's always been the case that if the ratings are bad, there's a real risk a show won't be uh, recontinued for another season. And there's a difference there between a public service broadcaster, so Channel 4 and the BBC, and a commercial broadcaster. A commercial broadcaster could argue quite rightly, this show's not hitting my target, whatever it is, for ratings or revenue. Therefore, I'm not going to continue it but you'd hope that a public broadcaster would actually invest in talent and would keep going until you know you have a hit so I think it's always been the case the difference now is that Twitter is obviously much more immediate uh, and much more vociferous and I think if you believe in something creatively you've got to put your head down and keep going and, and keep it on the air and we particularly want our public service broadcasters to do that. Uh, and Lisa, just uh, one more on uh, Shane Allen he was uh, he talked about this new BBC One sitcom with um, with Peter Kay and uh, it's going to be on the iPlayer first. And it was quite interesting. He was talking about sort of the shift in balance of power, it seemed to me. He said that um, Peter Kay will have a say in the scheduling of it and, and where it appears. And he also said, well, if Peter Kay wants a second series, then we'll give him a second series because he's a big talent. And it kind of felt like, well, you wouldn't have heard that a, a little while ago. I, I think Shane Allen, though, is famous for the way he, he deals with talent, the way he, he gets on with them. I think there are a few commissioners that really you know have tapped into the comedy community as effectively as he has and I think he's just a real champion of talent so I think that's very much you know in in his nature but it's also a reflection of of changing viewing habits and the BBC recognising that it needs to do more online and you know, premiering something on, on the iPlayer is really interesting not using BBC Three as the nursery slope as it, as it might have done in the past lots of interesting questions about how you get people there but uh, the benefit of the BBC is obviously they can cross promote it um, on the different channels but yeah I think it's uh, quite fascinating but Peter Kay is, is a big name I suppose and they'll let him do that if it was a upcoming comedian probably not and I'm looking forward to the new BBC2 sitcom with Vic and Bob. That looked brilliant, didn't it? I thought that was uh, <laughs> a slapstick, sort of lots of... Well, anyway, I'll let you describe it. <laughs> you're you a Vic and Bob man, Paul? I am. I can recommend. I can recommend this. I've forgotten what it's called. House of Fools, House is it? House of Fools, yeah. that's it, yeah. So it's kind of cross between shooting stars and bottom and, I don't know, something else. Yeah. Begins with um, Vic wedged in a wall and... Uh, having various things. Oh, really? Having various things done to him from behind. Okay, I can't yeah. wait. That was, the, that was the pitch in that first meeting with Shane Allen, I think. Yeah. Anyway, well, that's it for this part of the show. My thanks to Mr. Paul Robinson and to Lisa Campbell. 
OK, well, I did suggest it had been a slightly uh, BBC-heavy week, so uh, when I talk TV with... Uh, oh, here she is now, Guardian's TV editor, Rebecca Nicholson. Rebecca, hello. Hello. Uh, we're going to start off with a non-BBC TV show. What have you got for me? Should we talk about the murder trial? That's a non-BBC That's TV a show. That's a non-BBC TV show. Channel 4. Channel 4's big event. So this was a Scottish trial, a Scottish murder trial, you may have gathered from the name, and cameras were camera crews were given unprecedented access, so it was shot 24 hours in a style from very many different angles. And it was stunning, really, because I, I think two hours, my attention span is short, and I thought a two-hour documentary, even though it's about a murder trial, may be a bit boring. And actually, the first kind of half hour you realize that it's not glamorous it's not it's not like a tv trial it's fairly kind of it, it looks like an office it's not it's, the good wife it's not the good wife more's the pity um <laughs> no but actually this was so brilliant it was so engaging it was beautifully balanced it was very fair it spoke to lots of different people uh, involved in the case you know from the child of the woman who was murdered and the man accused of murdering her uh, which was very moving. Just uh, brilliantly done, brilliantly done. I wonder if there'll be more. I wonder if it'll set a precedent. But I think the, the greatest thing about it was uh, something that Tim Dowling said in his TV review. He said he was surprised at the verdict and he would have been surprised either way. I think that was really interesting. Okay, yeah, because Channel 4, I think, are speaking to... Um, uh, they, they are seeing if they can if they can repeat this if experiment they can do put more. cameras back in the court. Yeah. yeah. And there was no voiceover, was there? It was almost, it was almost like a docudrama with the, yeah. with the emphasis on, on docu. Yeah. It was almost like a... It was very docu. What about the sense, someone said to me that they, they were worried about the people who were in it and whether they they would feel sort of exploited by it or, or looking at the way it was packaged and put put on TV. Do you think it was sensitive? I think it was incredibly sensitive and it would have been so easy to tip it. It was very, very, but as I said, it was very balanced. And I think in showing everyone's side, it was actually very mu- moving and it kind of it humanises a story that you would read on a page and perhaps not get that full effect from. So I thought it was very well done. Okay, well, at the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, this week saw a long-running Radio 4 show transfer to BBC Two. Uh, Nothing unusual in that, but uh, this particular one, Count Arthur Strong, has been going on Radio 4 for, well, quite a few years now. How did it it look with uh, with pictures attached? Well, I don't know how it looked without the pictures attached, because I have to say the words Radio 4 comedy tend to send me off. (laughs) <laughs> running in a I different direction saying. it's not one for me so I've never heard this um, but I had some expectations of it given that it's Graham Linehan and Stephen Delaney I wasn't hugely impressed it felt incredibly dated I didn't I mean I don't know Have you? are you a fan of the radio well, I'm, show I'm the mirror image of you Rebecca in the sense that uh, I have heard the radio show but didn't watch the TV show right. uh, apart from the 30 second clip and uh, yeah it's sort of funny for five minutes you know but uh, I don't know how how humorous can it be uh, he says stumbling over his words uh, listening to someone or watching someone stumble over his words and get his, get his words mixed <laughs> up and uh, he's, he's sort of a comedy old gent that uh, always puts on his wrong glasses isn't he so this isn't so, this sort isn't of some figure, classic almost. of radio that it's you know been brutalised for TV uh, no what he is he's a classic Marmite figure okay. I think no one no one gets backs up on Radio 4's feedback like Count Arthur Strong oh I see but at the same time he's got a devoted uh, loyal audience I think he won a Sony Radio Award uh, last year or, or the year before so uh, you know I, th- I think I'll give him a go and he's already been got a, he's already been given a second series well I feel very chastened by all of this stuff about the right way in the comments this week saying that actually we don't give sitcoms a chance anymore we judge them on their first episode it's an instant thing and if we don't like it we take to Twitter and we take it down and I do a- agree that shows should be given a chance there are things that take a while to bed in absolutely and I felt that this but this to me was just a bizarre 
as I, I say, judging it on its first episode. But it was just, it didn't laugh once. And poor old Rory Kinnear looked as if he desperately wanted to be in a better show. And this is Rory Kinnear who says, I'm definitely not going to be the next yeah, Doctor let's Who. let's see, let's see. He he's in Southcliffe, which is coming up on Channel 4 in the next few weeks. And he's excellent in that. He's Southcliffe. He's very serious. Yeah, this about. is the incredibly depressing, but probably really, really very good incredibly, drama about. Incredibly, yeah, both of those things. Incredibly depressing and also brilliant. A shooting spree, is that right? A shooting spree. And he's in that and he is just so good in that. He's so, and I, then I saw him in this and thought, oh, poor old Rory Kinnear. He gets <laughs> around trying. there, doesn't he? He does, he works very hard. He was very good in Skyfall, I thought. He was. What no. else has he done? <laughs> Sky. What a thankful, thank, thankless role in Skyfall he had, yeah. Just the, the office nerd. Yeah, I mean, I think I've summed that up. I think that was what it said on the credits at the end. Is that what it says? Office nerd, I think so. Yeah. Oh. Uh, no, I made it up. But there was one more thing. Uh, now this is uh, this is for younger listeners. Uh, there's this uh, video on demand service uh, called I think it's called Netflix. Uh, I don't know what that stands for, <laughs> but um, which was previously home of um, the House of Cards remake. Yep. And now uh, home to something called uh, they've got another uh, original production in an attempt to take down those old-fashioned linear broadcasters and this is uh, orange is the new black yes this is a a dramedy i believe the word has been bandied around uh, from the creator of weeds and it's set in a women's prison it's actually based on a true life memoir it's about a woman who uh, smuggles drug money and 10 years later is asked to surrender herself to prison for the crime so she's got her whole life set up almost and it's taken away and she goes to prison this isn't Oz. It's not particularly gritty, but it's got that kind of weedsy tone of quite sharp humour, surprisingly sharp humour. And I found it very endearing. I've only seen one episode. They have put all of them online today. There are 13 of them. I haven't had that long, sadly, to sit and watch the Netflix at my desk. Although, actually, this is a show that I should perhaps not have watched at my desk because the first episode is quite rude. Is it? Yes. Filth. It didn't, it didn't have sort of seven heads that made you gasp like Luther. It wasn't, but, no, uh, it wasn't that. I, I mean, I just should learn to stop watching telly nudity. at my desk. Yeah, lots of nudity. Really? Yeah. Well, that'll do Netflix subscriber numbers. No harm. <laughs> no harm whatsoever. And does it feel does it feel like an on-demand show or are the kind of production values good enough that you feel no. like you could be watching a telly? The production values... the telly box. It definitely does. It feels exactly like a glossy... American cable drama. I don't know how the financing works for Netflix. I'd be really curious to know because I can't imagine that it was a cheap show to make. I mean, it's a 13-episode series. They've already commissioned a second one. So they're obviously optimistic that it worked. But it's a great cast. It's very well done and very likeable. There's something very kind of appealing about it. But this is obviously based on the first episode as I haven't seen the rest of it yet. Have you watched the entirety of the new series of Arrested Development yet, or were you not a fan? I watched about episode 12. Really? Yeah. And I have... watched all of them in one big burst up until that point, and then have just stopped. I need to watch the others, but it was quite a lot. And did it stand up? This is the comedy that's brought back by Netflix, of course, but did it stand up with the, with the old series? It was very much for the fans, and actually I think I'd like to go back and watch it again, because I watched it in the excitement of the immediate, kind of, it's back, and it wasn't quite as good as the TV version. The episodes were longer, the jokes weren't as tight, but there were a lot of them. So it's one of those things where my immediate reaction was that it wasn't as good, but I've thought about it a lot since, and I wonder if actually it just warrants a second viewing. But I'm pleased this place exists. I think there's some really good stuff coming from it. Good. Well, I'm, I'm catching up with this digital stuff. I, I, uh, I finally got around to using my Kindle after two years of ownership. Uh, yeah, you can't watch Sally on a Kindle. No, no, I'm just I'm sorry talking to about break, digital I'm sorry media. to break the news. <laughs> it's a media podcast. We do other stuff. It's not very often. In fact, this is my debut conversation about books. Right. And uh, so I got my book, yep. Michael Palin's Diary, since you ask. 
Uh, but it turns out I used a slightly dodgy credit card. Uh, <laughs> so I've not actually paid for it. So I've essentially I've accidentally done my first illegal download. So yeah. you've, you've stolen a Michael Palin ebook. I thought they sucked it back off the Kindle. down. Back You're down not going to end up in Orange is the New Black for that kind of crime. I think they're going to let you go. Anyway, I am confessing it now. I'm trying to put it right. But uh, on that... <laughs> On that bombshell, uh, Rebecca Nicholson, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this week's show. You can leave your comments on our Facebook wall or our blog, or you can tweet me at johnplunkett149. My thanks to all this week's guests, who were Lisa Campbell, Paul Robinson, Roy Greenslade, and Rebecca Nicholson. Media Talk is produced by Matt Hill. I'm John Plunkett. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.